0: This episode is brought to you by Crunch Firm, a full stack finance, accounting, and CFO advisory partner focused exclusively on VC backed startups. Crunch Firm steps in as a hands on CFO for their clients and serves as a one stop shop, taking on bookkeeping, back office, tax, cap table management, financial modeling, and fundraising support. If you are a founder or know a founder of a fast-growing startup looking for a best-in-class partner for these crucial services, get in touch with the team at Crunchfirm by emailing hello at crunchfirm.com. Listeners also get the first month free. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past and future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com slash startup. I'd like to thank Adele Archer for introducing me to today's guest, Jake Liu, CEO of Outer. Outer is an extraordinary company that is re-engineering outdoor furniture. Business Insider named them as number one fastest growing D2C brand. I chat with Jake about how he went from founding a B2B business to B2C, his really unique showroom strategy, which I thought was very clever, how he was able to fundraise, and much, much more. Without further ado, here's Jake. Jake, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am doing well. Thanks for inviting me, Uh, Mike. Please. It's such a pleasure to have you on. So let's start at the beginning. Talk to me a little bit about your attraction to software and entrepreneurship.
1: My attraction to software. So in the beginning, I guess it goes to my father, who is an electrical engineer. So I was born in China, but he's one of the you know first families in China probably to get a computer back in ninety. The I guess the mid nineties, and uh, I basically developed a love for computer and uh, software at a very young age. And so fast forward to my you know college years, I studied in computer engineering and uh, yeah I mean I graduated the first job I had was engineering job at a telecom and then my first uh, foray outside of that was actually in the video game company called Riot Games and so you know software computer technology was always part of my life.
0: Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So I guess your initial traction entrepreneurship, was that through Riot Games? I mean, tell me as well, I know that you started your own B2B SaaS company originally, prospect-wise. What were some of the learnings like from that experience and how did that kind of develop into itself?
1: Yeah. I mean, my first time building a business was definitely, I, I call it like a crash course for entrepreneurship just because I basically made all the mistakes I can imagine. You know, there were some successes, but a lot of failures as well. I think, you know, uh, more than anything, it was basically a really good learning lesson for me to you know how to build a team how to fundraise how to set expectations how do you attract talent and then just how to weather the storms I mean you know it's as an entrepreneur I'm always more optimistic and so when I faced challenges for the first time it was very uh disheartening but over time I basically developed this mental callous to basically be okay with all the challenges that that I face and so I do think prospect wise was definitely a crash course for me in that regard.
0: Got it. Now that makes a lot of sense. And then I mean you did something very different. You went from B2B SaaS to developing Outer. Tell me about why, I mean your your interest in retail. Um, and why you decided to launch um, a furniture company.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are a few reasons at the time, you know, when I was building prospect wise, I've spent, uh, over four years, just, uh, kind of just banging my head against the wall, right. Trying to learn how to build a startup. But, you know, at the same time, I also developed a really great network and circle of friends and investors and people who I trust that, you know, are just excited to see, uh, me working on something new. And so, yeah, I mean, outer was, uh, basically, um, I mean, the original story was that, you know, my, my, my. My family, a cousin of mine actually has a factory. And so he specializes in patio furniture, outdoor furniture, and he's been supplying to, you know, a lot of major retailers and online platforms like Wayfair, Amazon, etc. And, you know, he's doing well. And so basically I took interest in that. Um, and I said, maybe I can't help you build something, um, you know, an e-commerce operation uh, for you directly without working with other retailers. So I did that in 2016. That was when I was also still building prospect wise. It was really just doing it on the side. But that business really started taking off after the first few months. Um, I was doing awesome cash flow. It was, you know, got to a million dollar in, in run rate in record time. Became one of the fastest growing patio furniture vendors, for example, on Wayfair, which was fast growing as well. And so that really kind of gave me the first hand look at how exciting this space really is. As you know, furniture shopping is moving online at the increasing pace in America outdoor furniture is actually, you know, a blowout success as well, because outdoor living is becoming a major trend here in the US. Everybody wants that indoor-outdoor lifestyle, right? That sliding glass door that leads out to a a patio. And so, yeah, I mean, seeing that the market doesn't really have a lot of great options and seeing that I had the resource of the factory, the last piece was really just finding a team and a co-founder and partner that can do that. And I found that in my co-founder, Terry Lynn, who was the former head furniture designer at Pottery Barn, right? And so, I felt like I had all the ingredients and all the right pieces in place to basically create a really compelling brand that really just focuses on outdoor living. And we really go deep into little details of what makes outdoor furniture great and what makes them painful, right? And we uncover a lot of those and solve a lot of those problems. And so that's how we got started about a little less than three years ago.
0: What I love about your story is that when I've had other entrepreneurs on, it's been about the brand first and you know interested in a product building a brand from the beginning where i think where your story differs uh, which i really appreciate is that you actually started on the production side originally right and then you went you obviously went into wholesale and went through welfare and then you thought wait let's back up can we actually build this into our own brand and and actually create our
1: own like custom outdoor furniture pieces. Is that is is that right? That's right. That's right. And so one thing I didn't mention is that my co-founder Terry, he was also the VP of product management at Casper. And everybody knows that Casper is a you know, very fast growing, very successful new brand, right? A new digital brand. And we've definitely learned a lot of things about what to do, right? In, in building a brand, but also some some uh, mistakes to avoid. And I think one of the key learnings is that, you know, Terry, he himself is a ideal trained designer, you know, he's all about customer centric design, it's all about solving problems through design. And so, you know, the concept of brand before product, it just, you know, it just baffles me because I feel like, you know, a product begets the brand, right? Product itself is the brand. That's how people interact with your brand in the first place through the product. And so in the very, you know, day one, we basically said, we need to really delve into the actual construction of the products, down to the yarns of the fabrics, to every single screw, to finding out what are the the pain points that people with existing outdoor furniture are facing. How do we solve for those before you even started imagining, you know, what the logo looks like or what the website looks like or how the packaging could be really shiny and all of that, which are important. But, you know, I think... I guess one of the uh, false promises of modern brands is that they are basically reinventing kind of like this customer experience. But while they succeed in doing so, right, through really, really clever marketing and branding and positioning and design-wise, sometimes the product itself is overlooked. And I think that's a huge miss because at the end of the day, as consumers, we care about the product. That's what we paid for right? That's the promise that the experience would bring. And so at the end of the day, it's all about the product. And so basically we really, really stress that in, in the very beginning.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's fascinating because, you know i think a lot of entrepreneurs when they begin their business they have this insight that hey this market is growing in your case it's it's outdoor furniture but you were actually experiencing that from the very beginning when you were actually wholesaling and and actually selling on wayfair and really exploding on wayfair and then you backed up and you thought how can we actually create our own brand and our own custom outdoor furniture that is, you know, very differentiated of what's currently out there because we know that outdoor furniture is becoming more and more popular.
1: That's right. That's right. I think a lot of that is both through, you know, the hands-on experience with the wholesale, you know, business, but also just seeing the macro trends, right? Like you said, I think I recently read a report that says, you know, the average home buyer is willing to give up, you know, entire bedroom just to have a little bit of outdoor space. You know, it's becoming this mainstream. And another study that says, you know, for seven years in a row, outdoor living room is the number one requested feature in American home. So, you know, we're seeing these, you know, rising trends that that are changing consumer behavior. And this is all before COVID, by the way, right? After the pandemic, everyone's thinking about how do I make my backyard livable and more enjoyable, ex- expand my living living spaces, right? And at home without building a new room, so to speak. And so we, I really noticed that in the, in the very beginning, but the problem is that existing solutions just don't cut it. You know, there are just so many pitfalls when it comes to outdoor furniture. I think a lot of, you, you know, your audience might relate to this. We call it the wet bottom syndrome, which is you're sitting down on this innocuous looking patio set and, you know, the water gushes out <laughs> which gets your pants wet and your days ruined, right? So that kind of experience is really terrible for people that just want to go outside, have a cup of coffee, uh, to have a phone call, just to have a moment, right? And they have to deal with this wet and dirty cushion or it's covered by a ring tarp or the cushions are inside, nowhere to be found. And so these are all the really prominent problems that span the, uh, doesn't matter if you, you buy it from, you know, like a Home Depot, Wayfair, Ikea, or you shell, shell out the ten twenty thousand $20,000 from, restoration hardware or italian designer furniture right you have the same issue and so we thought we can take a crack at you know solving those problems
0: no that's that's amazing i mean you know i'm thinking about when i grew up and and the furniture that we had outside we actually just had like plastic chairs but i think the reason why my parents had plastic chairs and nothing with cushions was because for that reason of having the, the maintenance and maintain the maintenance that goes along with it, where plastic chairs, you can just, you know, take a paper
1: towel and just, and just wipe it clean. So talk to me about your innovations. Let me back up a little bit by, by telling you about, you know, what's different between outdoor furniture and indoor furniture. I think the biggest challenge in outdoor furniture is that you can't use any organic materials. So usually you can use cotton and wood and all these natural materials in your indoor furniture because it's always sheltered right it doesn't get rained on it doesn't have uv exposure 24 7 not the same case for outdoor and you don't have control over where people put the outdoor sofa right it could be a customer next to the ocean i mean santa monica could be a customer in you know in the middle of texas it could be a customer in maine with brutal winters so you don't really have control over that and so your palette when it comes to material is very very limited so you have to use synthetic material, in this case, plastic and metal. How do you make you know, materials out of plastic that's also comfortable, right? soft to the touch, it doesn't feel plasticky, uh, but also make it durable so it lasts uh, under sun exposure, it lasts under rain and snow. But also one of the other challenges that we've taken on is how do you make that synthetic material then sustainable, eco-friendly? How do you make it so it's recyclable? It's really hard to balance what I call the golden triangle of durability, comfort, and eco-friendliness in this category. But exactly that's the challenge that we took on. Uh, that's why we took you know, 14 months in just developing our fabrics. Um, that's essentially water-resistant, stain-resistant, mold-resistant, UV-resistant. It's life-proof. But when you touch it, you feel like it's made of cotton. It's the softest thing, right? But it's also recyclable. So, you know, that's a huge piece of technology that we developed in the beginning. Another thing is the cushion itself. I mean, most people just accept the fact that outdoor furniture is just not comfortable when comparing to your indoor sofa. You know, there's no way your outdoor sofa could be nearly as comfortable. And so we also said, you know, that that can be it. You know, we can create the most comfortable outdoor seating as well. And so we took a multi-layer foam design. That's kind of like a, a page out of some of the memory foam mattresses out there, right? We have a memory foam top layer and we have a, a basic uh, foam block at the at the bottom, so you have this really soft but also supportive foam that creates the perfect seating cushion that's also water resistant and all of that good stuff and then the last piece is really the maintenance so you know imagine if every time you you, you want to use your sofa at the end of a long working day, you know and then you have to think about, oh, is my sofa clean is it dry imagine that right but that's the problem with outdoor furniture you always have to ask that question and so we solve that by basically creating this thing called outer shell um, it's kind of hard to describe over just voice but imagine an integrated built-in piece of cover that's tucked behind the back of your back cushion but that's you know attached to the seat cushion so once you're done using the sofa you can just pull the entire uh, cover over and then Velcro it to the bottom. So it kind of like protects the entire cushion and turns it into a briefcase. Um, it also has a handle on top of it. So you can take the entire cushion and go with you in case of heavy rainstorms. But, you know, in the morning, if you just want to have a moment with, uh, you know, have a cup of coffee or whatever, you have, you know, left hand, you're holding a cup of coffee. You can just use one hand, use your right hand to just flip open the outer shell cover and the sofa is ready to use. So we're doing away the need for a heavy rain tarp. And... We're, we're making the transporting cushions inside and out extremely easy, if that's what you prefer to do. It's a very simple invention. If you look at the animation on our website, levado.com, it'll be like, wow, nobody has thought of this before. It's such a simple invention. And uh, that was really our aha moment. It's little things like that that no one has really thought about. We worked on, we came up with the design, we applied for a patent. And that's what our customers are raving about today.
0: So, talk to me a little bit about differentiation. Um, which, by the way, this this all sounds you know awesome. Uh, I can't wait to try one. I will certainly have to tell my in-laws about it. And but, wanted to think about how you think about a differentiation and and like a competitive advantage that you might have compared to others in terms of if they're able to actually replicate your product.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's a really good question. I mean, I I believe that nothing in the world is is. Uh, I mean, like it's a sofa at the end of the day, right? It's not, it's not, um, although, you know, the, the fabric itself, you know, it does have a pretty proprietary ingredient and, uh, process to create the fabrics to make it soft and water resistant and all that good stuff. But at the end of the day, if you really want to copy it, you could take apart the fabrics and look at the yarns and really try to figure out and, you know, figure out what kind of layers you need to get, uh, get on it to make it waterproof, et cetera. But I think it's really the combination of that, but also the business model itself. I mean, furniture in general is just a very archaic industry. I mean, first of all, maybe a lot of people know the fact that furniture has a five to eight X markup. So if you're buying, you know, your, your set from a mainstream retailer today in America, you're paying five to eight X of what basically the, the factory price is because of the middle middlemen, right? Because of the wholesalers, the distributors, the retail shops, the salespeople, and it's just layers of onion, right? And so when it comes to outdoor furniture, unfortunately, there is not a way to cut. There, there isn't a shortcut. You can't really skimp on the material. So if you really have to use high quality material that can last outdoors, you can't just go to the cheapest supplier. You have to go for the high end, you know, top shelf materials available out there. And so those are expensive in the first place. And then you're looking at the five to eight X markup. That's how you're buying that set from, you know, some of these premium brands at like 10, 20 K for just a, a, you know, outdoor sofa. But our model is that, you know, we're going directly to the, to the factory, in this case, my family's factory. And then the cost is already cheaper because we go to the source, right? Our fabrics are developed through plastic resin that's, you know, partially recycled. And we're going to the source of the plastic resin. And we work with all of the, you know, subsequent suppliers directly to make sure that we are, we're having lowest cost, but on the highest quality material possible. And then we don't have any middlemen like wholesalers and you know, retailers and, and uh, distributors, et cetera, you know, we, we're going D2C on our website. And so you're getting, you know, analogy I like to use is that you're getting something, you know, for example, you're getting this sofa for $5,000, but its material worth is about $2,000. We only need a 2.5X markup because we don't have any middleman to pay for. We can still, you know, build a profitable business that way. But if you're going to the next guy with a premium product, with an archaic model, you're paying eight thousand dollars for a thousand dollar worth of product so you see the difference here it, it's you know you're getting something that's worse at a more expensive price if you don't go without outer. I really
0: appreciate you breaking down the costs especially how it works for a retail product versus a DDC product because people talk about how DDC is as ch- much cheaper as channel because you don't go through middlemen but like in your case you're only marketing up two point five whereas in retail it's you know Eight x. I mean, that's 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 a crazy markup. I, I think that just shows listeners like how much middlemen can really make a difference when it comes to price. That's yeah, that's that's awesome. Um. So okay. So you have this amazing. Product. Now, talk to me a little bit about distribution. I know a lot of investors when they're thinking about opportunities, they also really concentrate on on the actual initial uh, distribution for um, for a startup because distribution is as important as um, as having a superior product. How did you pro- approach distribution at the early stages?
1: You learned from my you know building my first company that you know we can't take the build it and they will come kind of mentality, right? That's a famous saying from I guess the the Y Combinator school of thought, and I totally agree with that. And so it's increasingly harder if you're dealing with a physical product. In our case, a bulky sofa. But even then, you know, we we were really meticulous in talking to customers, right? Customer development, talking to people who are living with their patio furniture, you know, day in day out, and finding out what you know pain points they they're dealing with, etc. And uh, one of it is the shopping experience. So you know, you're asking about distribution. So if you're shopping for outdoor furniture today. You either go to a stuffy showroom, right? Faced with a pushy salesperson in a fake setup, right? In this case, a fluorescent lit room, uh, you know, the the furniture is inside, it's in in an air conditioned room. So you don't really get to see how it would perform in a real setting. The alternative is you're going online to these e-commerce platforms and sure you have more options, but that's also a problem, right? What is the difference between Wicker and wood boutique? aluminum? Should you use steel uh, over aluminum? What kind of different wicker, synthetic wickers are there? Is it PVC? Is it polyethylene? Is it high density polyethylene? What are the differences? Between... So there's really not a lot of content, right, to educate you uh, online about that as well. And in addition, if you're shopping online, you don't get to see touch and feel. You don't get to leverage your five senses. And so one of the problems that we're trying to solve is exactly this customer experience, the shopping experience. And our answer is this thing called neighborhood showroom. And so the idea is that we're turning our customers' backyards into our physical showrooms. And so people who buy our product, who are enamored with it, they are actually willing to open up their backyard and list it on our, web- on our website. Uh, obviously, you know, without disclosing their exact address, so strangers can't just show up randomly. <laughs> it's uh, by appointment only, kind of like Airbnb. And then prospective customers can basically come to our site, if they live in Houston, for example, they can just say, "Where are some nearby neighborhood showroom hosts for Outer that I can go physically see and touch, and actually talk to a real customer about how they've lived with it in a real setting?" Right. In this case, it's a it's a real person's backyard, and so in this way, the customer is getting a really great experience because you know they're seeing the real product, they can get to see and touch it, they can talk to a real customer and interview how they like it, and they get ins- inspirations from how people other people are decorating it and how they're setting it up for. The business, in this case, for us, we don't have to shell out millions of dollars building out these, you know, archaic retail showrooms that honestly just don't get used a lot, right? If you think about like furniture retail, it's probably just second to buying a car. It's just really painful. You're going to this store and then, you know, it's just not a great experience. And so... We were able to basically double down on that as our go-to-market and as our first distribution strategy.
0: First of all, I 100% agree that the furniture showroom is not a great experience. So I really like this idea of the neighborhood showroom. What was what was the process when you were setting this up to make sure and validating and, and establishing that trust with folks that... Hey, you can go to this house. It's a safe location for, for folks to come in and actually, cause I'd imagine that, that there might be some trust issues there.
1: So in the beginning, we thought the idea is pretty crazy, right? You know, it's just something just like, what if, right? And it's just worth testing something that's worth testing. But if you really think about it, people nowadays do this all the time organically without a platform. I mean, people are, buying, you know, used furniture on, on Craigslist all the time, and they are visiting a stranger's place without any vetting or any information, right? And they feel comfortable doing that. Um, you know, the classifieds on Facebook, on Craigslist, on whatever. I mean, it's it's existing behavior. Airbnb is the company that has really, I guess, popularized and really trailblazed in this area of basically, you know, democratizing this stranger economy, right? And so basically, yeah, I mean, they, they paved the way for us. Uh, people are already pretty familiar and pretty comfortable with it. In this case, we have the advantage of being in a backyard. In this case, it's a semi, it's just like semi-public place, right? It's it's outside. Usually, you know, you have a back gate to the backyard. You don't even have to go through the living room, right? It's a place of gathering. It's a place of socializing. And so people feel naturally okay with that. So it's even easier and safer and more comfortable than than the Airbnb experience. And so we thought if they can do it, we can do it too. That was the original assumption anyway.
0: And when you, and when you started doing these and folks were willing to, once they purchased your product, it was like an application or like, how did, how did that process work?
1: Yeah. I mean, that took a lot of iterations. I mean, I still remember our first few hosts They're they're in LA. We're we're based in LA. We're based in Santa Monica. So we just look for, you know, people in our area to kind of give it a try. And so I remember the first version of this was just me posting to next door. I mean, for your audience who don't know who, who, what next door is is basically like a social media platform for neighbors, right? It's like Facebook for neighbors. And so I literally just posted a thread on it that says, Hey, you know, I have a I have this outdoor furniture company, you know, I don't I don't have a store, you know, we don't have money to build a store, but is anybody willing to just open up your backyard? I'll gift you a sofa. Right. Like if people in the, in the area wants to come take a look, can you just let them in and, you know, take a look at the product? We'll vet it and everything. Are you willing to do it? And it was just a big assumption that people are just going to call me crazy and, you know, they'll, 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 they'll have security concerns, privacy concerns, all of that. But lo and behold, I, you know, received many, many comments and messages saying, you know, I would love to do this. Right. I want to meet my neighbors. I can't do this for you. You know, I would love a free sofa if I can get that out of this. So we started with that. And then the next iteration was like a Facebook ad in LA. I remember we just ran a very basic ad and we had like hundreds of applications in the first month of people wanting to do it. And at that time, I think we were providing like, I don't know, like half off on the sofa or something, right? People who were in the market to buy a sofa, they can enjoy 50% off and then they can, you know, do this. And then we also thought that was a lot of people who were just, you know, doing it to get a free or a discounted product. And so after many, many iterations, Currently in July of 2020, the iteration that we're on that we're seeing a lot of success is that we're targeting people who are in the market for our product in the first place because they just want the outer sofa and they come to the site and they, they learn about the neighborhood showroom program, they can apply to it. And by applying to it, they are getting a 10% off discount. And so we're not a discount brand, right? We don't ever run clearances or discounts as aggressively as any other furniture retailers because we're already promising a bottom floor bottom price. And so by applying to this sniper showroom program, you're getting this perk of 10% off. And so at that point, I don't really guarantee that you can be a host, right? I just guarantee that you can get a 10% because off because you can, you're spending the time to apply to the program and all of that and giving us information on why you can be a good host, right? And so at that point, they can purchase with the 10% off discount code. After they've lived with the product for a few weeks, then we reach out and say, Hey, Mike, it looks like, you know, you've enjoyed your outer sofa for a few weeks. You also apply to our neighborhood showroom program. Are you still interested? Right. Do you still want to do this? Now that you live with the, uh, with the sofa for so long, do you actually enjoy it that you can, you know, speak to, speak to it and really vouch for it and recommend it to others. You know, 9.8 times out of 10 people are really happy with the product. You know, at that point they've already lived the product for a while they're, you know, really, you know, eager to become a host because they feel like they're part of the company, which they are, and um, they're participating in the growth and the success of the brand. And by talking to their neighbors and, you know, people that they've never met before about a product that they love, I think that's a very organic thing. Like I do that all the time, right? I love to recommend great products and services to my friends and even people that I don't know. And so we're able to tap into that kind of, I guess, excitement, over our brand and about our products, and really to amplify the, the the neighborhood showroom platform that way.
0: I'm so fascinated about early distribution strategies, especially for products that, first of all, are expensive products. I mean, I know that, uh, but you know, buying a sofa it's 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 still a high ticket item. But you're you're really. Creative way for for folks be able to try it with this neighborhood backyard program. So, talk to me a little bit about. I don't know if we've covered this, but I know you launched May twenty nineteen. Talk to me a little bit about your initial launch strategy.
1: Yeah, and so we officially launched in May of two thousand and nineteen. Uh, obviously, the months before that, we were doing a lot of tests, including you know the experiments I just told you, uh, posting to Nextdoor and Facebook, etc., just to get a sense of you know how people would react to neighborhood showroom. And also just collecting feedback. You know, we I think we shipped the first prototype units both to our office in Santa Monica, but also to a few early adopters at a massive discount just because they're prototype units, even in November of 2018, when, when when we had the first iteration, because we were afraid of doubling down on growth and going to market if we didn't know that the product itself is sound and the people love it. And so in May, we still weren't a hundred percent sure that that's the case because we only had a handful of people in LA that was, you know, testing out the product and they really loved it. Right. And they identified some of the early things, like the first iteration of the fabric um, was easier to stain than we had hoped for. So we iterated on that, uh, you know, multiple times. And so the go-to-market in the beginning was really just a very concentrated, you know, like, can we actually get more customers in LA? Can we get more customers in these regions through, you know, Facebook? through social media to basically get a sense of how people take to the, you know, to the product. And also just setting up all the distribution, like basically the fulfillment logistics, through PL, delivery, et cetera. You know, in the beginning, shipping a bulky product like furniture is very costly. If you don't have a high volume account with a UPS, you're paying, you know, close to a thousand dollars, if not more, just to ship a sofa across the country. Right. And that's not viable economically. So basically we were just taking all the steps necessary to make sure that the foundation is built, that we're able to find these really scalable acquisition channels, whether it be on social media or on you know uh, you know PR or search, etc. But also working on logistics, you know, channels where it's ocean freight to last mile delivery to warehousing, and then also most importantly, really just understanding the the product feedback from customers all over the country, not just LA, but what how does a person in New York like the product, especially through the fall and and winter, right? So when we launched, it was summer, it was May, it's the peak of outdoor buying, you know, season. And so we're able to get a variety of, you know, customer samples and feedback from all of the country. And so, you know, it took us seven months to really, to feel comfortable. And every month we would test something different because it wasn't about how do we grow quickly? It was more about how do we learn as much as possible from our customers and, you know, testing with different partners, et cetera. So it it wasn't until January of 2020 that we felt really comfortable and confident in doubling down on growth. That's when we knew that we had a 93, close to 100 MPS Net Promoter Score. And we found a few really great logistics partners that were able to cut our costs by close to 80%. And then lastly, you know, able to find a few marketing channels that we feel really comfortable and confident in doubling down on, on growing on without you know, burning money to grow our revenue, so to speak.
0: Absolutely. That's, that. wow, that's that's amazing. Talk to me a little bit about how did you think about feedback loops and as well as organic acquisition?
1: The feedback loop in the beginning, you know, I remember visiting, I mean, the first few customers, I personally delivered the product and helped them assemble and set it up and talk to them and understanding how they use the space and etc. So, you know, I try to do that for all of the customers in LA and our team actually took, took turns to do that. And, you know, a lot of them were also our early neighborhood showroom hosts, right? They're doubling as um, our hosts as well. So really trying to, you know, meet them, understanding how, you know, what attracted them, what drew them and, you know, what are the problems that they're facing, et cetera. And so that was the the early days, I think, you know, from May to October of last year, that was basically every day It was just getting close to customers, physically visit them if possible, call them, email them, getting those feedback, and then iterate on you know the product or the website or the platform right away. I think that's the superpower of a DDC brand is the, the fact that you're so close to these customers and they're so willing to talk to you about it. A lot of them know that they're buying into your early brand, right? They know that you're a young brand. And that's actually when you have an advantage as the founding team or the, as a founder yourself to leverage the fact that you are you are the brand right the relationship is the brand and so how do you actually lean into that and build these customer relationships where you know it's not only just for feedback on your product but it's also building a long lasting relationship where they're able to you know kind of if they see any problems with the product the first reaction is not to go call and complain and leave negative review, is to reach out to you and knowing that you, you're listening to them and you will do everything possible to make it right for them, which we've done. So yeah, I mean, in, in the early days, it was all about that hands-on customer service. I mean, even to this day, you know, we still require that everybody talk to the customers as much as possible, not just our CS team. And the second question is about repeat purchase rates. So we have a five-year warranty on the wicker and on the fabrics and a 10 years on the frame and on the legs. And it's number one in the industry. I mean, nobody is, you know, comfortable warrantying any outdoor furniture because... I guess they're just not comfortable and confident about their, their own materials, but we are. So, you know, our warranty is, is basically top shelf, uh, best in the industry. But even then, you know, we do have customers that have pets at home, kids at home, or frankly, you know, just huge uh, wind that would blow their cushions away and they would just want to replace their cushions and their, their covers. So that's actually one of the biggest problems for outdoor furniture ownership is that if you bought a set from a retailer you know, last year and then for some reason, you know, you, you have a cushion that's missing or that's damaged, you know, your, your pet chewed on it or whatever, then you were kind of out of luck. You kind of have to go and just find a local tailor or someone to make a custom cushion for you, which can be really, really costly and a pain. And so that is a big problem for outdoor furniture ownership. And so we, we have these uh, ready to ship cushions, replacement cushions available that if you're missing a cushion, if you want a cushion, We'll ship it to you right away. You know, you get it within days and it's guaranteed to fit. And you can also remove the cover, the cushion cover. So we have two colors, the white and the gray. And so you can actually swap it out. You can throw in the washer and then you can, you know, use a fresh set of covers easily because, you know, it does get dirty easily, easier because it's outside. Even though it's stain resistant, you know, dust will still settle on it, et cetera. So those are the repeat components that's unique to the outdoor furniture category but it's all about how you build a great experience for the customer. So they know that one, you're not doing planned obsolescence. So you, we, we did not design the product, so it deteriorates quickly, so people replace it. That's not the case at all. But if they do need to replace it due to accidental damages, they can, and we can make it very effortless for them. And then I guess, you know, the other thing is that our sofa, the outer sofa is actually modular. So we have a lot of customers that have bought a three-piece set. In this case, maybe a sofa, right? Um, last year. And then they like it so much. They're coming back to buy, you know, three more pieces and turn it into an L sectional. So we have a lot of that as well. And this is all before we release our next products, right. In coffee table, Chase lounger, rugs, chairs, dining sets, et cetera. I mean, that's just a huge space that we're really, really excited to fill.
0: So wanted to talk, I know this is a venture capital podcast, wanted to talk about your time fundraising. And uh, I guess for the first question, why you chose to
1: fundraise? Yeah. I mean, we definitely had that, you know, kind of like crossroad moment, right? Like do we fundraise um, or do we just bootstrap this because we have the advantage of having our own supply chain. And that's usually the Reason why people needed to out to have outside capital is to fund the inventory. In our case, we didn't really have that problem. We still don't have that problem because you know uh, my family factory is also equity holder and they're considered founder of the business. So you know we don't actually have to pay for the inventory until it's sold, and that's a huge advantage to us. That's not available to a lot of people, and so you know, we seriously considered, you know, should we just bootstrap this? At the end of the day, you know, we thought about what we want to become, you know, our vision is to become the number one, you know, outdoor living brand in the world. We're starting with outdoor furniture, but there's just so much more we can do in the space to really elevate outdoor living. And so to realize that vision, you know, I do think VC, uh, venture capital is important because we need to, you know, attract world-class talent. Another thing is that we are investing heavily into R&D, right? Like Our fabric is a really good example of, you know, us not just picking something off the shelf, right? Not using readily made uh, outdoor fabrics, which for which there are a lot, you know, out there, you know, a lot of people are familiar with Umbrella and Perennials. And there are a lot of great brands out there that specialize in outdoor fabrics. But we instead said, hey, you know what? We want to cut down the cost. We want to create the product that's truly differentiated and, and great. And so we're going to develop our own fabrics, which then took over a year to do right? And so that kind of investment into R&D also requires some sort of outside capital. And lastly, it's really about investing into the neighborhood showroom platform, which, you know, it has the potential of disrupting and changing how people shop for home goods for good, right? We're we're on track to building a thousand neighborhood showrooms across the country in the next 12 months and truly become the largest crowdsourced retail showroom platform in the world because of that. And so that requires a lot of product iterations on how do you create a better experience for the visitor, for the hosts? How do you actually you know, uh, hire the great designers, engineers, and product people to be able to take on that? Right. We're essentially recreating Airbnb before retail. And that also requires outside capital. So because of those three reasons, we were pretty sure that VC was the way to go for us.
0: Got it. Like I know that D2C brands, it has been um, a bit out of favor with VCs as a category uh, the past couple of years. What were some of your challenges um, when fundraising?
1: Yeah, that's certainly one, right? Like the fact that DTC is considered a category, just like in the sixth, 2016 when Dollar Shave Club sold and you know Casper was valued as a unicorn startup just a couple of years after founding and Allbirds and all those great brands just you know, seems to be succeeding in record time. It was, used to be really, really hot, right? Like VCs would see that, oh, DDC, I'm interested. But for the same reason, right? Casper didn't perform well after going IPO. There are a few really big brands that have failed, uh, like Brandless and a few other startups that have really demonstrated the opposite of that. And so all of a sudden, you know, VC interest in DDC as a category cooled off. I think the biggest fallacy is that people are considering DDC as a category. First of all, like, I don't agree with that, you know, DTC is, is a great channel, right? To acquire customers and is a great business model in cutting out a middleman. If that's what DDC is, then it's part of what could be a really successful brand. But I think brands nowadays, you know, really need to think about, and that's how I think about it too. You know, we really think about how do we create a brand that have differentiated products that are omnichannel that can serve customers you know, that's most convenient to them, how they want to see, touch and feel the product, how they want to experience a the brand, well, then we'll go there, right? DDC is a really good way of kickstarting that brand. So you can have that one-on-one relationship that I mentioned earlier, and you can have that really candid and transparent feedback loop with the customers and with the founding team. I think that's those are the superpowers of DDC. So when I talk to investors, back to your question, I try to avoid investors who are thematically driven in this case like, oh, I only invest in DTC brands or I don't invest in DTC brands because you're a DTC. I try to categorically avoid those conversations because I know that they don't have the patience of seeing, you know, what makes outer different and what what is the longer term vision beyond just the, the draw of a DTC brand, a modern brand. And so, you know, that was my my approach to fundraising in the beginning.
0: No, of course, that makes sense. And I know that some of the reasons why it's been out of favor, uh, which by the way, I agree with your sentiments totally. I think it very much depends on the category, It very much depends on the product. With your product, I could see lots of differentiation with your product. I mean, especially on the product side and on the distribution side. It's just, I really do sincerely think how you, with the outdoor uh, showrooms, that's just, Fantastic. Obviously, a big reason why VCs have been you know wary of DMVBs is because of you know the duopoly in Google and Facebook, and when it comes to advertising and efficiency in advertising. I had one investor on that was a generalist that says a lot of people say that, but it really depends what, what category you're actually selling in. And how actually competitive, for example, buying on, on SEM is or buying on Facebook. I'm just kind of curious in terms of the actual competitiveness, though, uh, for outdoor furniture on the Facebook side and on the SEM side. Has it been very competitive?
1: That's a really good question. I think that investor is spot on. Uh, and, you know, you can't really just be categorically, you know, deny DDC and say that, you know, Facebook and Google won't work. If you're starting another mattress brand today, chances are you're gonna have a really, you know, tough <laughs> uphill battle, right? Because of how competitive that, that marketplace is, and everybody's about advertising on Facebook and Google. In our case, you know, outdoor furniture is something that's been overlooked by a lot of bigger brands, right? If you're a traditional furniture retailer, then you know that outdoor furniture as a category is quickly growing, but it's such a small piece of the pie in home goods that usually you just kind of overlook it, right? It's an innovative dilemma. It's a classic innovative dilemma case here. You know, they're not really spending a lot of advertising dollars. In this case, a lot of these, you know, companies are more traditional retail companies that don't really have a digital playbook. They don't have the expertise, right? That's also what makes it possible for us to quickly build up this brand. It's really a leveled playing field, right? There aren't really established outdoor living or outdoor furniture brands out there because of this. and so. We actually, I think we started our our SEM in April of this year, March or April of this year. And in a month, we overtook pretty much all major furniture retailers out there to become number two on search impressions on outdoor furniture-related terms. And a month later, we actually overtook even Wayfair, right? The number one e-commerce furniture platform in the U.S. today. And that's just, you know, we're we're barely a year-old company. And they're a multi-billion, fast-growing company That's all they do is outdoor furniture. But the fact because they don't focus on outdoor, right? They focus on anything uh, furniture related. That gives us a, a really unique advantage to go and really own the space. And so I truly believe in just focus and believe in this relentlessly focusing on the category that you're creating a product for. And there are still a lot of great opportunities for new products and new categories that are just untouched by traditional retailers.
0: No, and that makes actually a lot of sense. Because if you think about, you know, maybe the purchase behavior of a person that's buying outdoor furniture, they might not even look online, they're actually probably going to search for stores that are close to them, right? So they might be more using like Google Maps. So there's, there's in some reason, no actual reason for, for furniture store to actually be promoting their products online, because the experience is going to be in store and it's actually more promoting your brand about you're a store that sells furniture, right? As opposed to particular products. And so I can understand why you'd be able to take advantage of that and, and maybe there being some arbitrage opportunities there.
1: And then that's on a search side. On a social side, I mean, that's probably a little bit more of a mixed bag because you're trying to fight over the same audiences, right? If you're Targeting the stereotypical DNVB customer, right? The millennial urban dweller, bi-coastal city dwellers, you know, who really are looking for that one very distinctive style, right? That that DDC website that everybody has a has a, a image of in their minds that are plastered all over Instagram, right? So in that case, you know, we also differ in the sense that we are serving a slightly older demographic. We're serving Gen X right? People who have a little bit more of disposable income because we're a premium brand, people who don't necessarily live in city centers. They they tend to live in suburbs and you know even cities like Austin and Nashville and Denver, right? Not necessarily Manhattan and downtown LA or San Francisco or Chicago. And so that's also underserved population, in my, in my opinion, that not a lot of people are bidding against us for. And those are exactly the people who have limited options when it comes to outdoor furniture. Those are the people who actually do have the space in their home, right? In, the, in this case, a backyard to need quality outdoor furniture. And so we were able to kind of carve out our own persona that we can target and serve really, really well.
0: I love that. So what are what are some of your major markets for Outer?
1: So, you know, um, there are some usual suspects, right? Like every business will be, you know, will have its ups and downs, right? So far, you know, it sounds like, wow, outdoor furniture would be like a perfect category. So the, the challenge is that it is seasonal right? People who are in New York will not consider outdoor furniture in the middle of the winter when there's a blizzard outside, right? Like that's the last thing you think about. So to answer your question, you know, SoCal is a huge market for us. Florida is a huge market for us. Texas, kind of all these Southern states are good for us. New York is actually a really big market for us as well because of the affluent, you know, neighborhoods and also just sheer population. And you know, I've heard the, the term cabin fever throw, thrown around from customers uh, in New England area and like in the Midwest and even in the, you know, in the Seattle area, um, in the Northwest, etc. Because they really treasure, you know, those months where they can spend every single day outside. They want to you know, live the outdoor lifestyle. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we perform really well in those categories. I mean, currently we're in all 50 states. I mean, we've all, we've already had customers who paid like $2,000 out of pocket to ship Outer to, um, to Hawaii. Uh, they should pay for their own shipping containers, right? Cause, just because they love the product and they don't have a lot of great options out there.
0: I'm curious back on the fundraising piece you know I had on who actually was a another I know you weren't but your partner is a an ideal alum uh, Coulter Lewis who's the CEO of Sunday Lawn and they sell environmentally friendly non-pesticidal uh, lawn care products around the country. And my question for you, what he had a tough time when it came to fundraising. I'm just curious if you also had this issue. Since VCs were located in, you know, had apartments and condos and were located in, you know, the the Bay Area and the New Yorks and the LAs of the world, he had a tough time selling or convincing them that the lawn market is actually like a massive market. And I'm curious if since VCs are, you know, located in those in those locations, and if they, for example, didn't have a patio, did they have a hard time thinking that outdoor furniture was actually as big of a market as it is?
1: That's so funny. I definitely <laughs> experienced that firsthand as well. Um, I know it, it's it's kind of funny because um, w- when I talk to younger uh, investors, especially if, like associates and principals at firms, they have a tougher time relating to it, right? Cause they haven't, you know, had, had that house yet. Uh, maybe they, you know, with the parents' house that they did, but they didn't purchase outdoor furniture in this case, you know, in Sunday's case, maybe they never have to to care about lawn care. Right. But
0: exactly. But they like never had a lawn. So yeah. Right.
1: Right. So, uh, but the partners, usually they're, you know, uh, a little bit older, you know, they're more affluent, you know, a lot of them have, you know, vacation homes, et cetera, and they really get it. And so in my case, I actually had a better time talking to partners directly then sometimes talking to associates. So I can definitely relate to that CEO's experience firsthand. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I think this is the same book. And it's it's uh, it's not even a business book. It's called Sapiens. And a lot of people know about this, right? Brief uh, History of Humankind. And, uh, you know, inspired me personally in the sense that explains a lot of the kind of like the current climate, uh, you know, geopolitical, political wise, and just human behavior in general. And business wise, because you know, one thing that really uh, matters to me as a founder, you know, I I was born in China, I moved to the US when I was pretty young, when I was in middle school, and grew up in Alabama, and moved out to LA, I I feel like I've experienced, you know, three cultures, right, like the the Chinese culture, um, the southern, you know, US culture, and then the LA, like coastal culture. And so, you know, one thing in the book in the sapiens that really stuck with me is the idea of globalization. And It's something that really drives me when I build Outer because we have a truly global business. You know, we have a supply chain that's based in China. You know, we have a very diverse team. You know, I myself and also Terry, he's a American born Chinese. Uh, I myself, I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen that's born in China. And so I think the concept of globalization is so key and so important for our generation. I think, you know, uh, one of the things that, that the book talks about that is that the human story is a story of globalization and, you know, from the, the tribes to villages, to cities, to towns, to then countries, right? I think the next step is how do you actually have this, I like to call it the, like the Martian vision, right? Like imagine if you're on Mars and you're looking on, on at Earth as one global person, a human, uh, you know, species how do you then unite and, and do good? And so that's my under underpinning drive to basically bridge the gap between a lot of the cultural misunderstandings between two of the biggest economies in the world, China and the US, right? I mean, having lived in both countries, I know that people are not so different after all. It's a lot of politics and a lot of media that portrays it otherwise. And so how do we actually leverage commerce, a harbinger for peace, how do we actually promote this capitalistic or democratic peace, right? Is to through trade and through healthy commerce. And it's not through, you know, these cheaply made mass market, you know, the so so-called made in China products of the yesteryears. It's how do you leverage the Chinese supply chain to do what they do best, but to create truly superior products that can serve people in the US and all of the world? You know, outer would not exist today. If it wasn't for the factory of my cousins in China, if it is not for his hard work, and if it's not for his team, you know, Chinese workers that migrate from all over China to go to this coastal town to create these beautiful products by hand. And, you know, the factory would not exist if it wasn't for the market here in the U.S., right, to basically to want this kind of products, And so, and I cannot create jobs here. If it wasn't for that. And so everything is interdependent when it comes to the economy, when it comes to the environment, even nowadays, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, global health, et cetera. And so that's one thing, a a long winded way of saying Sapiens, you know, the book really has left a huge impression on me, right. In in the story of globalization. And so I'm optimistic that we are, you know, in a retraction period that always happens before a huge explosion of globalization, and so uh, that's what how the book inspiring me on the business side as well.
0: I love that. I mean, there's so many so many takeaways and, and really great points from that. I really appreciate it, and I think what I think as well is what your company's mission to is. You know, when you say "made in China," I think. A lot of Americans think, okay, it's a, or it could be like a cheaply made product. And I think that one of the beautiful things about outer is, hey, this is made of China. We're proud of it. And this is actually, you know, the best outdoor furniture that you can actually buy.
1: That's right. And it's designed by a, a team that's, that's cross border, right? We're global. We're all global citizens. We're all in this together. So what difference does it make if it's made in China or in, in America?
0: My final question is, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders that are building a DNVB, physical good type businesses?
1: Focus on the product. I mean, at the end of the day, the product is what matters. That's the case for software. That's the case for any startup. That's certainly the case for DNVBs that have physical goods. At the end of the day, you can take the easy route of picking, you know, going to Alibaba, going to these sites and just finding a product and just repackage it and sell it. But I would challenge everybody to take the longer route of identifying what is that problem that you can solve, you know, that's unique to your product and really work on the product, right? Find a designer, really spend the time understanding the product itself. How do you actually not just make little changes, but fundamentally change how it's made and how it's constructed? It's not easy, right? But I do think you know, to build something that's, that's stuff uh, value is never easy. And so I think DMVB is one of the most exciting opportunities that face entrepreneurs today due to the globalization and like, you know, global supply chain, but you can't you know try not to take the easy route of just swapping out of the box and building a beautiful site but invest into product design.
0: I love that I love that I, I completely agree about product. Um, it's so interesting because you know on some of the other guests they've talked so heavily about how do not look a uh, distribution and I think sometimes you can get wrapped up in just thinking about your distribution strategies and which is very very helpful and great but there has to also be a balance with developing a, a superior product at the end of the day
1: that's right was it steve jobs that said advertising the cost you pay for poor products i think i think it rings true today
0: yeah absolutely well jake this has been such a pleasure thank you so much for your time
1: thank you so much really enjoyed it
0: and there you have it it was so much fun chatting with jake about outer Feel free to follow him on Twitter at Jake Liu. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.